So, Second John, hope you guys are all there with me. And, and we move here tonight in our series, going through the Bible from 30,000 feet, doing this overview look. We move into two of the shortest books that we have in the Bible. Pretty interesting. There was a, a recent list compiled of some of the shortest modern books written. Some of the titles were Everything Men Know About Women, How to Build a Winning Team, by the Cleveland Browns, for some of you NFL fans out there, you'll get that one. How to, ma- uh, how, to, how to Make Marriage Work by Elizabeth Taylor. Very, very short, short book. And then Selecting the Right TV for Your Amish Home. Also very condensed writing there for that. So some small things that we've seen. Though, though we have some of the shortest books in 2nd and 3rd John, we know that we can often expect some wonderful things from Short things. Amen? Can I get an amen from anybody here? All right. All right. That's great. Yes, indeed. John still packs a punch here with these two epistles that really more resemble uh, not so much a letter, but just a postcard in a sense. But we see some important truths that are being shared. In fact, this word truth becomes a very important word. John, you see, is writing in the late 90s, most likely. It's been some... 60 years or more since Jesus was crucified, he rose again, he's ascended into heaven. That's a long time. And, and as we move in the next generation of people who have never really seen Jesus, never spent time with Jesus as John had the privilege, because here's the apostle, right? The apostle, the, the one that Jesus loved, the man that walked with Jesus. Others didn't have that privilege. Some have never seen Jesus, never had that opportunity. And sadly, what happens is time progresses that stories can begin to change or get distorted with that sort of time. Think about just even the Holocaust that happened, you know, just a little over 70 years ago and how that already has attempted to be rewritten, even some challenging that 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 even happened at all. So here in John's day, he has to contend with those who are attempting to kind of change the message, sort of you know, distort things a little bit, change the truth to some degree. And so the purpose in writing this is that John is writing to direct his readers now to continue in the truth, to remain in the truth, to stay in the truth, how important that was for these early believers now, the early church, to not veer away from this message and the gospel truth that has been passed down to them. Now, Before we really dive into the book here, we see John writing, look at that here in verse 1, the elder and to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. Now, the elect lady. So we see that John is writing to this elect lady, but we have to ask ourselves here now, who is this elect lady? Now, it's brought up some questions and debate regarding who she is. There's a couple suggestions that we should bring up here. First of all, some say that the elect lady is a specific woman that John knew and he's, he's writing this letter to her in this relationship that he has with her, this, this knowledge and this fellowship he's had with her. Some say that this elect lady is actually a reference to the church and then her children that John addresses is really those that are a part of the church, those that have been saved. It's the believers here that are walking in the truth and are a part of the church. That's the most widely accepted view as to who this elect lady is that John is writing to. The personification of of nations and cities as female personages is, is common in the Bible. And the Christian church is often referred to as the bride of Christ, right? So to mention her as a, as a she, as a, a female, is nothing odd or unusual. Plus, we see John moving from a singular pronoun to talk about that in a plural pronoun when he speaks of this woman throughout this letter here. And so it seems like he's referencing her not just as an individual person, but as a group of people. Now, some believe also that John may be speaking to both, that this was a woman that he knew but she was also a member of valid or important part of the church, perhaps even having the church meeting in her home. So it could be that he's kind of addressing this in a, in a twofold way. But most likely, it's a reference to the church that John is writing to. Now, why would John be speaking so ambiguously here? Why would he not just address this church? Well, he doesn't mention directly who he was addressing, nor does he identify himself in the letter as was custom. Because I believe 
he did that because of the time that John is writing as persecution to the church was again really heating up. Nero has passed, Domitian is now reigning, the Roman emperor, and again bringing some very heated persecution against the church. So to mention anyone by name, you know, would just be kind of like placing a target on their back and saying, oh, there's somebody there that you might want to watch out for. So John is being very ambiguous in who he's writing to, even addressing himself as the author of this book, as was very common here. So what we're going to see here in this letter is, or in these two letters, really kind of looking at this outline here, commending the church, verses 1 to 4, 2 John, challenging the church, in verses 5 to 6, cautioning the church, verses 7 to 11, comforting the church in verses 12 to 13, and we're going to see the characters in the church in 3 John, uh, in verses 1 to 14 of that, of that book. So let's look at at John commending the church here, first of all. Again, reading from verse 1, he says, The elder, the the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Verse 4, I rejoiced greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth as we received a commandment from the Father. So again, John identifies himself as the elder. He's speaking of himself here. And that was quite fitting as John was not just an elder in in an office that he was holding, but he was an elder because this man was old at this point. I mean, he's he's in his mid-90s, perhaps pushing close to 100 at the time of writing this. So he's not only an elder by position, but he was um, by default an elder just based on his age. It's interesting how in, in Western culture today, we can tend to marginalize seniors. But in this day, and still in the Middle East today, seniors are revered, they're looked to with great authority. That's the case with John at this time. People would be looking to him as this man that had great authority. And, and again, you remember as John was moving about from church to church, people were taking him and people were flocking together and, and he was well aged at this time and, and people would just kind of put him before the congregation. People would gather just to hear this word from John, the last remaining of the apostles and the disciples. And what John would oftentimes just simply say to those gathering would just be, my little children love one another. That would be the words that he would say. Love one another. But people would just come just to hear from him and, and, and gather this, this word from him. And it's great to know, isn't it, in God's economy, that God doesn't just kind of dismiss or put you away based on age, but in God's economy, he loves to use those that are simply allowing themselves to be used, making themselves available. That you don't have to be shelved when you hit a certain age, but God says, man, I'm going to keep using you as long as you are available and, and, and faithful. I'm so glad for that, that God still has work for all of his people to do and to, and to carry out. And John is a great example of that for us. Now, notice how John... Is very open to communicate the love he has for these people, right? He just says, to the lady and her children whom I love, right? Whom I love in truth. I mean, John just lets them know, guys, I just, I love you so much. So oftentimes, we have to wait for our funeral to hear how much people love you, right? I mean, it's too late at that point, but John is letting it go right now. He's just saying, guys, I just want to be open and let you know how much I care for you and love you. And after all, John was the disciple of love. And, and we see that just so much exuding. I mean, this, this title really fit. As he began to understand how much God loved him, how much Jesus loved him, he just began to exude this kind of love for one another. But now he adds something. He says, whom I love in truth. See, though John was the apostle of love, he knew full well that this love had to be based on and, and balanced with truth. And John spoke more about truth than any other writer did. Look at how many times he spoke about 26 times in John, the Gospel of John. Nine times in 1 John he talked about truth. Five times in 2 John. And six times in 3 John he will talk about truth. 
this was something that was very important and paramount in, in John's ministry and in his life here. It's an important relationship that we need to see between love and truth. You see, as John was quick to point out the importance of love in 1 John, he knew that it had to rightly be balanced with truth. Always be balanced with truth. See, we can all get mushy as we talk about love. We can all get very just soft as we talk about love and just kind of feel, well, it doesn't really matter what a person is doing. We just want to love them. Or just as long as they're walking in love, it doesn't matter what they do. But you see, truth must always be prominent or dominant or, 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 or you know, just taking priority in, in many things. You see, oftentimes we compromise truth for the sake of love. We go, well, we don't want to offend anybody. Oh, we don't want to speak that. So we just want to walk in love. And what happens is that we then end up compromising truth. We see it happening in the, in the world today. So oftentimes that we don't want to speak truth. We just want to speak what's going to be kind and make me feel comfortable. Don't speak truth. But you see, if we're not speaking truth, then we're also not being very loving. If a doctor were to examine you and he finds like you've got, you know, uh, some severe cancer and the doctor's like, oh, that's not going to be very good news. That's not going to make that person feel very happy. You know what? I'm just going to keep this from him. I don't want to ruin his day. Man, that would just be miserable. I won't let him know he's got. I mean, that, that doctor should be fired. Like, you can't do that. Because the doctor cares for this person, he wants to communicate the truth that there's an issue here that we need to deal with and make right. And that's the way it is in in Christianity is that we need to speak truth that oftentimes is not going to be well received from people. It's not going to make them feel comfortable. They're not going to like it. But because we love them, we want to speak truth. So love must always be balanced with truth. But because we love people, we want to speak the truth to them. To love in truth reveals that we are loving in a way that is true. That it's not fake, that it's not following the way, or that it is, I should say, that it is following the way prescribed in God's word of how to love. Because if you're loving without truth, you're just a hypocrite. But if you're speaking truth without love, well, then you're just going to be hurtful and harmful. That's why Paul would say, speak the truth in love. We need to have these two wrapped together so tightly. And so, John continues on to say that it's because of the truth which abides in us. Because the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, what exactly is John speaking of here? It it could be that he's speaking of Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, right? It could be that he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said will lead us and guide us into all truth, that he is the spirit of truth, as John 14, 17 says. And it could be that he's speaking of the word of God, which Jesus said, your word is truth. Perhaps John has all three in mind. He's understanding the relationship he has with Jesus, the way, the truth, and life. The relationship that he is dependent on the Holy Spirit to lead him and guide him as the spirit of truth. And the word of God that we need to be in so that we can remain in the truth. Such a glorious wonder to know that all these three are sustaining us and abiding with us forever, it says. And leading us in truth. How important that is. And so John says here, I rejoiced greatly, right? In verse 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly. See, John shares his excitement now at the fact that this lady's children are are walking in truth. This is what really got John's heart beat. It's just excited that your children are walking in truth. Again, this is most likely speaking of believers in a church congregation rather than a woman's actual children. And John didn't care if they were members of his church or not. He just loved to see people walking in truth. But more importantly, 
we should catch the point that John is making in that is that truth is not just something to attain to, but it's something to be lived out. Something to continue on and live out. See, many Christians rely simply on what they know, but the Christian life is to be an exercise of what we know. It's something that we're to be living out and putting in a practice for others to see. And John is excited. He's full of joy because these children are not just talking the talk, but they're walking the walk now. They're living out this truth. They're walking in the truth. They're letting this be seen and evident in their lives. Oh, I pray that we'll be doing the same. That we're not just those that say, oh yeah, I know the truth and we're holding it in, but that we're walking in the truth, meaning that we're living it out. We're making this exemplary. We're we're revealing this in how we conduct ourselves and how we live our lives. And then John moves on to kind of challenge the church a little bit here in verses five and six. We read there in verse 5, and, and now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. So John implores the church here to be a people who are living out this love. And he says, this should not be something that's new to you. This is something that we've had and heard from the beginning. In fact, 1 John 3.11, John says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should love one another. John's not imposing some new challenge or some new truth that was, you know, kind of so foreign to them. This is something that they should already be grasping, understanding, knowing, because they've heard it already. It should be a basic tenet of Christianity to walk in love. The problem comes when we begin to stray from that which was once fresh and vibrant. You know, remember that was the problem with the church in Ephesus, according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. What happened to the church in Ephesus? They had left their first love. In other words, they walked away from it. It was something that stopped being vibrant and fresh in their lives. And so Jesus comes and says, you need to repeat these things that you did once before. You need to stir those things up. You need to see that, that candle of, of love be rekindled for Jesus again. Do the things that you did at the first. Because they'd left their first love. And how do we show that we're walking in this love? There's one simple way that the Bible repeats oftentimes for us to know that you're walking in love is that you follow his commandments. You do, you carry out his commandments, right? That's what, what John is getting at here. That we love, and this is love that we walk, verse six, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. The command heard from the beginning was to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? I mean, John Read that in 1 John 2, verse 24. And this is what you should walk in. Now remember, his commandments are not burdensome. These are not something that puts a heavy on you, it robs you joy. No, this is the, the way that we begin to experience the blessed life, the joy that Jesus has for us by walking in this love, love for God, love for one another. And what happens when we do so is that we begin to kind of get put down, pushed out of the way where it's not about us any longer. It's about showing our love and devotion to God first and foremost and to our fellow man around us where the focus is not on us. The the minute that our lives begin to revolve around us, man, we're going to be robbed of joy. Jesus says, man, my my commandment is not burdensome. I'm giving you something that's going to help you walk in greater joy. Get your eyes off of yourself and begin to walk in love for others. Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 15 and 21, if you love me, Keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see, what happens when we begin to walk in love to our Heavenly Father and we begin to obey his commandments, we begin to realize, man, I'm in, in, in wonderful harmony and in fellowship with, with my God. We begin to understand and realize all the more his love for us, that he's with us, that he cares for us. We're not walking and doing our own thing and, and then realizing, man, what a, a doofus we are and start to question 
if God can ever love us. And when we're following in his commandments and walking in love, we, we know all the more the love that God has for us. That's the way of peace and blessing and joy. So Peter is challenging the church, or sorry, John, thank you. John is challenging the church here to be those that know what has always been from the very beginning, to walk in love, to obey his commandments, and they go, again, they go hand in hand. And then John in verse 7 now cautions the church. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. So John cautions the church now to be aware of false teachers and deceivers. It's, it's much the same as what he did in his first letter. Notice that in verse 4, he says, I have found some of your children walking in truth. Now he says, many deceivers have gone out. This, this was a widespread problem where people weren't continuing on in the truth that they had had from the beginning, the things that they had heard from the beginning. They didn't continue on in them. Oh, they may have listened for a time. They may have put it into practice for a time, but they didn't continue in those things. And people, you see, were coming in and deceiving them and, and turning them away from that which was true. And that was, as John says here, it's, it's the action. That's the antics of the Antichrist, of an Antichrist, one that's opposed to Christ. They were creeping into the church and seeking to lead people astray. And so too, we have to be so careful of teaching that may sound authoritative, deep and spiritual, and be sure that it lines up with the truth of God's word. In John's day, the problem was that, the problem was what, you know, they said about Jesus. It really all comes down to Jesus, doesn't it? Just like many false religions and cults that claim to be Christian, but what do they do? They distort the view of Jesus. They distort the person of Jesus. And so John takes them to the test that he brought up in 1 John 4, 2, where in 1 John 4, 2, he said, by this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So there's a popular view or a popular false view and teaching in John's day that we touched on last week in our intro to 1 John. And it was the early stages of Gnosticism. They believed that matter was evil. And so Jesus were really God, then he couldn't have come in the flesh. It, it was a deceptive lie, and many were falling prey to that. That's why John is imploring the church to walk in truth and, and to walk in the commands of God that was so vital. They had to be careful that they weren't listening to the lie. Mark Twain, interestingly, said this. He said, a lie runs around the world while truth is putting on her shoes. It's true. Bad news or false news can spread very quickly. There's a real enemy and he's, he's called not just the deceiver, but the destroyer looking to drag people down and, and keep them away from God. Because they know if they can keep people away from God... The enemy knows if he can keep people from faith in God, then, then they're a goner. They're, they're deceived, but more so, they're going to be destroyed. His goal is your destruction. And so we need to be vigilant and on guard. Because there's a lot of people looking to infiltrate the church and, and corrupt and change just the simple truth that we have in God's word. Looking to add a little bit to it or take away a little bit from it. Oh, it might sound all in all like it's all good, but we have to be on guard and, and vigilant to know how the enemy operates. The enemy's not going to come in and just completely bring a whole other new gospel that's completely different. And it's going to just subtly change a few things. Just like, oh, you, you can believe in Jesus, but don't believe that he's really the son of God. Don't believe it really came as fully God and yet fully man. And this is what so many people were doing in this day. Don't entertain a lie or give in to new unbiblical views. Stay in the truth 
and be protective. Be protected. That's the, the word that John is giving here. So John exhorts to, what does he say there in verse 8? He says, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for. In other words, John is saying, be certain that you are walking in the truth. Look to yourselves. Look to see, am I a man that is, am I a person that is walking in the commands of God, that is walking in love? Have I been one that's remaining in the truth? We need to evaluate that in our lives often. Look to yourselves. Don't let anyone derail you or lead you away from this truth. It's a similar thing that Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 13 verse Verse 5, take heed that no one deceive you. Be on guard. Look to yourselves. Be aware. And what John is saying here, look to yourselves that we do not lose those things. He's, he could be implying that we've worked hard in presenting the gospel for you or to you. And, and be careful that that wasn't all in vain. It could be, and and many believe that what he's actually saying is, look to yourselves that you don't lose those things that you've worked for and that you may receive a full reward. That's what many see this as actually implying. And that would fit, it would fit either way. But I think that's so practical that we are looking to ourselves that, again, as we saw in um, 2 Peter here this past Sunday, that we are being those that are adding to our faith and continually moving forward, progressing in our faith, that we're looking to ourselves, that we're not taking a step backwards, that we're not losing ground, but that we're continuing to take ground and grow in our faith. How we need to work out our salvation, exercise ourselves to godliness, Paul would say. So look to yourselves. Make sure that you're remaining in these truths of God. You're not letting anything come in and distract or deceive you into something else. As John says, there's a reward waiting you. It's all going to be worth it. We're we're not doing all this in vain. There's a a, a blessing that's coming our way. A reward waiting for all those that will hold on to the truth and remain in Jesus. That's the only assurance we have of salvation is when we're remaining in Jesus, when we're remaining in the truth. And when we're doing so, and we have great assurance that we're in him and he in us. John goes on to say in verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. See, to transgress means to go beyond a boundary. And if you go beyond the word of God, then you show that you're not really a follower of God. But if you abide in the truth, then there's the assurance of being now in fellowship with God. That assurance again. Then you know that you are, that you're what? That you have God. That you're in Christ. John 8.32 says, You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And just allow you to live in freedom to know that, man, I'm saved. I'm in Christ. I know where I'm going. Just have that blessing of walking in that life in him. And then he says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him in your house or, or, or greet them. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now it's important to look at the custom of this day because in that day as you would have teachers, traveling teachers, Christian preachers that would move from town to town. They didn't have the luxuries of just checking into a, a Motel 6. So they'd rely upon the hospitality of you know, the church in a sense. And these false teachers were kind of preying upon the goodness of the church. And they were coming in and they were beginning to kind of use them and abuse them and and speak untruths to them and leading people astray. So John gives a real strong warning here. Don't let them in. Have nothing to do with them because they're not of us. They may, again, sound like they're one of us, that they're Christians, that they're followers that they're just here to bless the church but they're not and so john is very strong he says do not entertain them don't let them in don't even greet them because if you do you're going to share in his evil deeds that meant that you're not being hospitable to them where you're allowing them to continue on to spread this wrong doctrine now some have taken this kind of as a license now today 
to be rude and mean to those that come to your door with a false message, right? Where people apply to and say, oh man, I'm not even supposed to greet you. I'm going to slam the door on you. But see, it was a, a different setting that day. We had the opportunity when they come to our door to share the truth with them. And there's nothing wrong with inviting them in, sitting down with them to say, let me share with you what I believe. Let me share with you what the real gospel is. This isn't breaking what this is saying here. Now, if you invite them in, you have a coffee with them, you share with them, and then you say, hey, you know what? All right, I think we're done here. Why don't I just drive you around to the neighborhood and help you go door to door spreading your message? Now, that would be wrong. That would be letting them continue on with this false message. That's what John is talking about. Don't do that. Don't help them in this falsehood that they're spreading. That's what John is sharing and getting in. That's what we need to be careful of. But by all means, don't be rude, don't be mean to those that come with a different message. No, instead, share with them the truth and the reality of God's word. And then John Lassie comforts the church in verse 12 and 13. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. So John didn't want to, you know, just bother to keep writing. He would much rather see them face to face. He desired to be with them. And and, and isn't that always so much better, right? To be together. And that's what we are looking forward to seeing happening here at Riverside very soon here this month where we can come together again. That's what John desired. And he says, that's what's going to make my joy even full when I speak face to face with you. Oh, I pray that our joy just gets amped up here in the next little while as we begin to assemble together once again. There's a real excitement when like-minded people in the Lord are just in fellowship together. And might I just say that, you know, the more that we seek Jesus and know Jesus and spend time in fellowship with him. Because that's what John said in First John, right? That our fellowship is with the Lord and, and with, you know, um, he says, let me just read this again. And truly, verse 3 of First John, truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. He desired fellowship with them But he says, our fellowship really exists and revolves around our fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. And as we enjoy fellowship with one another, with God at the center, then our joy is made full. Now, these Christians may have had, you know, some questions and concerns, but John says, it'll all make sense when I get to you and I share more with you. When I get to see you face to face. I think that's so important to think about in our relationship with the Lord because there's a lot of things that we see right now that we wonder what's going on things that don't make sense to us things that we question and wonder what is going on but you know what there's coming a day when it will all make sense and that is when we see Jesus face to face he's coming soon and all those questions all the things that we've maybe struggled with and wondering why it's all going to be made sense in that day when we see him face to face. Well, in Third John now, we begin to address the characters in the church. And, and this is interesting. As we go through this letter, we get a glimpse into an early assembly and we see its ups and its downs. Why is there ups and downs in the church? Because there's people in the church. And <laughs> people can oftentimes create a lot of drama, unfortunately. And it was happening even here in the early church that John had to address. So tonight we're going to look at three characters that John addresses, and he addresses them by name in this letter. It's an interesting letter. And here we're going to see Gaius the Encourager. Here's the things that we're going to learn from them. Gaius the Encourager, he's a prosperous Christian. We're going to see Diotrephes the Egotist. He's a proud Christian. And then we'll see Demetrius the Example. He is a pleasant Christian to have around. So Gaius the Encourager, a prosperous Christian. Look at Verse 1 of chapter 1 and 3 John. The elder again, John, identifies himself as such the elder. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things 
and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified to the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Isn't that great? No greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. And that was much like he said in Second John as well. Now, verse 2 it is a verse that, you know, some have claimed as a proof text for their prosperity gospel or, you know, name it and claim it theology. They, they teach that God desires every person to walk in complete health and wealth, perfect healing. And, and that idea is just completely bogus. See, John is not laying down a principle for believers, but rather a prayer for a brother here. That's what John is saying. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul is prospering. So it's a prayer that I'll pray often, right? That, that I might be in good health, but also that my soul may just be prospering. This isn't a, a promise I hold on to in the sense that my, my health is going to be equivalent to where my spirit, my soul is. See, sometimes the Lord allows things to happen in us or to us so that he can do a greater work in us. Sometimes he allows sickness to come in or, or trial or difficulty. He allows these things to come in because he wants to do a greater work in us, you see. And notice as Gaius was prospering spiritually, John equates that and says, I, I pray that your physical health would match that spiritual health. Now, could somebody pray that for you? Would that be a blessing or a curse? <laughs> if someone prayed, I pray that your health lines up with where your spiritual life is. Would that mean, oh boy, that's going to cripple me? Or, yeah, pray that because, man, I'm walking in spiritual health and I pray that my physical health will line up with my spiritual health. To some, that'd be a very scary thing to pray. To others, that'd be a very comforting thing to pray. How would that be? In your life. I believe the Bible shows that as we do grow strong spiritually, man, I believe there's a physical blessing that comes from that too. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 8 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil, because it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Now, by no means can we go and just rightly attribute or quickly attribute someone's sickness to sin as some do in that whole, you know, um, name it and claim it theology. I've had people say that to me. Oh, the reason you're feeling that way is because you just don't have enough faith. You know, or there's sin in your life. I've had people say that about me. But you see, I think there's something to be said with what Proverbs is saying here that living life God's way is going to free us from many of the physical consequences of sin. That it's just going to go well with you. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? To, to follow these things, do these things, so that it might be well with you. I think that's happening not just spiritually, but physically as well. And John was so excited just to hear that his children there in verse 4 were indeed walking in truth. That's what it was all about for John here. It demonstrated a changed life, a saved life, a life in Christ. And to see others living it out brought just great joy to John. He says in verse 5 here, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So Gaius lived a life of love and action, didn't he? He was a servant. And this day of, you know, uh, again, not having that kind of easy access for people traveling through town to go and stay somewhere, people relied on the hospitality of others, as mentioned earlier. And so Gaius was one of those guys that just loved to help and encourage and, and bless others. He was faithful in what he did and in all that he did. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 says, And whatever you do, 
do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I think Gaius was a man that did that. I believe that in heaven, many are going to be surprised at the reward given to those that we thought were insignificant or or maybe even doing nothing. Things that were happening without us understanding or seeing or realizing. Jesus says in Matthew 25 verse 21, His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler now over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So that's what God is looking for. We're not in control of how much ability we have or how little, but rather with what we do with what we do have. Let me say it again. We're not in control of how much ability we have to be able to do all these different things. We're just in control of what we do with what we do have. In other words, the Lord's not looking to you to do the greatest work. He's looking to you simply to be faithful in the work that He puts before you, in the calling He's placed on your life, in the way He's gifted you, simply asking you to be faithful in that. We measure so often times, you know, success by how great or, or how much we've done. But the Lord isn't measuring success on those things and comparing it to other people, saying, no, you were faithful to do what I asked of you. You were faithful simply to do with, uh, to carry out the things that I, I put before you and to do those in the way that I equipped you to do so. That's all that we're called to do. Be faithful. God gives to each one and our responsibility is just to be faithful with every bit that he gives us. And that was the life of Gaius here. Gaius was just a great encourager to others as he served, as he blessed, and he prospered in that. But now we look at the next character in the church, Diotrephes, who is an egotist. He's a proud Christian. Look at verse 9. It says this, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Man. Diotrephes was just bad-mouthing John and, and these... Uh, apostles or or evangelists, teachers that were coming in. Now, Diotrephes was a guy that lived a life where it was just kind of all about him, right? Jesus said he loves to have the, or John said he loves to have the preeminence. In other words, he was a guy that desired to be first, to be elevated, to be seen, to be the one that everybody kind of looked to in the church, the head honcho, the big boss of the church. And it was this lust for eminence that made him a very jealous and insecure man because he felt threatened by the ministry of other people. He would not receive John or other missionaries. He had put them out of the church. In fact, as John says in verse 10, Diotrephes even began to badmouth them. That's what is meant when it says in the New King James that he, he's prating about, he's speaking nonsense about them, just badmouthing them. And didn't stop there. He, he wouldn't have anything to do with these traveling or itinerant teachers and ministers. He would have people excommunicated from the church, as I said, not showing any hospitality toward these visitors. Diotrephes was a prideful man. And, and what do we find at the root of so much of sin? Pride. I think you could pinpoint so much of sin to being about pride. What this is going to do for me. How this is going to Help me. In fact, isn't it pride that led to Satan's fall? Where he desired to be like God? Worshipped, elevated, pride. And I believe that it's pride so often that Satan continues to tempt us with that so much of sin can be a result of pride. And Diotrephes is a man that's riddled with this pride. John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Diotrephes' attitude was, 
You all must decrease so that I can increase. That was the way that Diotrephes lived his life. Putting other people down so that he could be elevated. And because of pride and self-ambition, he was blinded from seeing the truth. He refused fellowship from one of the Lord's own apostles among other brethren that would come in. Now I know what some of you might be thinking. Hmm, I wonder who might be a Diotrephes in our church. And the question is not so much who might be a Diotrephes, but rather, do I have a bit of that characteristic of Diotrephes in me? Are there tendencies that I might see rise up in my own life where I begin to act in pride? Where I begin to resemble a man like Diotrephes where I'm seeking the preeminence? Bible expositor A.T. Robertson once wrote an article for Southern Baptist magazine. He wrote a story depicting the conduct of Diotrephes but without naming him. In the weeks following the article, 25 deacons from various Baptist churches throughout the state wrote letters to the editor, canceling their subscription to the magazine. They all claimed that Robertson had been pointing his finger at them. And that was not his in- intent, his point. And yet, when they read, they began to see, oh man, there's a little bit of me in that. But rather than deal with it, they got angry at it. And that's the problem with pride, is that it's pride that prevents us from seeing the pride. It's pride that makes us say, oh, I'm not prideful. This isn't about me. Oh, I would never do that. And it's pride that causes us to be blinded from the very pride that sometimes is happening in our lives. How we need to humble ourselves. Isn't that what what Peter writes, that God opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. He gives grace to the humble. He strengthens the humble. How we need to be those that will continually humble ourselves before the Lord and ask the Lord to examine and evaluate our own heart. Lord, is there a little bit of diatrophies in me? Is there areas where I struggle with pride? Because Lord, pride is really so much at the root of sin. Help me not to allow these things to remain. Help me to humble myself. Verse 11 here is a good transitional verse now between a man like Diotrephes and the next person that we're going to see in Demetrius. Look at verse 11. It says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. And that was so much a word to Diotrephes, who was working evil, doing evil, no doubt had any relationship with God. But this next man was a man that was an example. Demetrius, the example of pleasant Christian to be around. It says in verse 12, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius was a man who just lived an exemplary life. Paul said in Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Could we say confidently, follow my example. Follow me. How many of us would be willing to tell somebody to do that? I'm thankful for people that have lived a a model life for me, that they've been an example to me of what it looks like to follow God and to live for God. I pray that I might live as an example to others, as an example of faith and trust and joy and love for God and love for others. Now, though we don't know what Demetrius did specifically, John holds holds him up as a example who has a good testimony before all and from all. F.B. Hole, commentator, said this. Note, it is not that he bore witness to the truth, but that the truth bore witness to him. Demetrius is not the standard by which truth was tested, but truth was the standard by which he was tested. And having been so tested, he stood approved. People could hold up the truth and go, yeah, this guy is following that. He's living it out. He was not the standard of truth, but rather the truth caused him to be seen as approved and a good example to all. May we be like Demetrius here, who is living an exemplary life, 
That's even a good testimony to those around us. So John here is writing with those key themes of love, of truth, and how we need to see those both packaged together and lived out. He, he addresses here again this commendation of the church, a challenge to the church. He cautions the church of deceivers, false teachers. He comforts the church here that he's going to come to them and see them again and reveals these characters in the church. Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. How we have some good examples and some that we need to watch out for. May we be those that were living again as pleasant Christians, being an example to many around us. All right, so second and third John, right there for us. So let's close this up in prayer, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for letting us come together here, letting us be able to put this service out um, online and just have people join together. And we pray that this would, be a, would have been just an encouraging word to many people. We thank you for the life of John and the way his heart comes out in these letters. Lord, I would just have such love. And he desires that his, his children, all those that are a part of the family of God, would just walk in truth. And I pray that for us as well here tonight, that we'd be those that will walk in truth, that we'd follow you, God, that we'd live out and obey the very commands you've given us, Lord. Help us to be like a Gaius that would, um, Lord, that would just walk in that truth and live it out who would just be such an encouragement to other people. Help us to be like Demetrius here, who lived an exemplary life as a witness to all that. I think it would just, it just cause many people to see the wonder and the greatness of Jesus. May we live those kinds of lives here, being an encourager to other people, being an example, just remaining in this love and truth as you called us to remain in these things. Lord, may we do so. Strengthen us now. Be with each and every person here watching online here with us presently. We pray that you would just strengthen us as we go about carrying out your work and being faithful Christians. That's us in your awesome name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, again, everybody, thanks for being with us here tonight. Stay tuned for some updates that will be coming from the church here and from me as we let you know kind of how things are going to be unfolding as we prepare and plan to begin to set things in motion with coming back together. But again, we're sort of targeting May 31st. Um, those of you that would love to come out next Wednesday night, I would say come on out. Um, and we may put some registration online for that just to make sure that we're not going over 50. But uh, I know our midweek services are, you know, uh, should be fine, should be safe, but, um, come on.